Talk Shop. Today is September 20th, 2016. Our guest today is Howard Eichenbaum, who is the William Fairfield Professor um, and Director of the Center for Memory and Brain at Boston University. Hi, Howard. Hi there. Um, his work on memory spans much time and lots of space in journals and has been hugely influential in defining the core process of the hippocampus and memory function. You like what I did there? Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. <laughs> Around the room we have Matt Winnott. Hello. We have Isabel Muzio. Hello. We have Alfonso Apicella. Hi. We have Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So I, let's start with this. So the, the idea of hippocampus as a memory operator dates back to human studies from the late 50s. But as, as someone who came of age in the post place cell era of the 90s, um, my appreciation of hippocampal function was so deeply shaped by its importance um, to spatial mapping and navigation. So you've been uh, one of the big voices for a, a long time in reorienting the field back toward a more fundamental associative function of the hippocampus in building not just our idea of XYZ space, but of a multidimensional memory space. That can, like be, that. That, that can then be mapped onto <laughs> neurons and networks. Uh, so it's a huge idea, and, and you've written about it, and it's incredibly complex, and it gets us, it covers so much space in terms of getting us from events and episodes to semantics. And I want to get there, but can you just <laughs> build us up to this idea a little bit by talking about the other um, robust codes that have been found in hippocampal neurons by you and others. The other than other, yeah, in the other ones, yeah, too. Right? The other ones. Well, so actually, so we, what you've introduced is there are, of course, these two literatures that have grown up about the hippocampus, one which really stems or primarily, although there were hints of it before, from studies on the famous patient HM, who had a severe and global amnestic deficit, uh, whose memory is virtually absent for certain kinds of memory, including spatial memory, but there was nothing special about his spatial memory deficit. And so folks so went off to find out well, what are the neurons that encode these wonderful memories and the, the techniques for recording from single cells and behaving rodents came about you know, years later in the late 60s, early 70s. And the surprising finding was the existence of these place cells. It's neurons that fire when animals are in particular locations in their, in their environment. And so ever since then, and then that stemmed a whole new discipline that went off in its direction, which started out with the idea that you're mapping spaces in which things might occur, <laughs> and that eventually has kind of morphed into the idea that this is the core structure for navigation. In fact, uh, the Nobel Prize, which was awarded to some of the folks who found these cells, uh, was described as uh, for the discovery of the GPS, right? the brain's inner GPS, to which point I usually raise up my the little uh, phone I have in my uh, pocket and say, how come I had to pay 600 bucks for this thing because I've already got one uh, in my brain? <laughs> and so there's these, these competing views, and they're both the, the place cell folks, the spatial navigation folks, are kind of off on their own track and largely ignoring this much larger, actually, human literature, mostly from cognitive neuroscience and studies on humans. And then I sort of sit in the funny middle uh, doing what I refer to as working as, as if I were working on people, but a special uh, subset, subcategory of people who happen to have long years and tails and are kind of short and silly looking. But otherwise, we treat them as if they had memories like people have. So I've been trying to use that as a tool to record from these cells that would be the place cells to find out what they actually have to do with memory. And it turns out that the key to 
beginning to make that bridge is to put animals into real memory situations. So one, one thing that's certainly worth noting that is kind of at the basis of the schema, the, the schism, I should say, between the two disciplines is those who study place cells and, and grid cells and the other cells that fire associated with space use very reduced behavioral conditions. In fact, they reduce it to behaviors that have nothing to do with navigation. They have animals walking randomly in an open space picking up food. Nobody would really call that behavior or would call that navigation. It doesn't require navigation to do that, certainly. It doesn't require hippocampus to do that. Or they have them running in tracks back and forth. Similarly, no hippocampus requirement, no navigational requirement in any sensible way. And those are the conditions in which you see these place cells are very prominent. Uh, but they're, the, the properties of these cells, as soon as you build up the tasks, they have other meaningful events occurring, the kinds of things that might require a hippocampal function. The cells start picking up other information until they become very complex in their response properties. And so the question is, how do we make sense of those response properties? On the one hand, you ask, what do these cells look like? They look like cells that encode a multitude of different dimensions of things, specific uh, events that occur, as well as the sort of context in which those events happen. Um, and so... How does, uh, so a reconciliation, it seems to me, may be born out of that yet. I think it's actually emerging in the literature now, both in studies in cognitive neuroscience in humans and even in the studies in animals, too, that suggest that what the convergence of these is, is what the place cells represent as sort of elements of a kind of, of map of space, the way things were originally arranged, essentially a spatial framework in which events occur. Again, place cell people don't bother to look for events occurring. They just look for the spatial part. But it looks like what hippocampal cells, to, to a great extent, is simply map continuous variables that make up a spatial context. And uh, that would suggest that one can also have other kinds of contexts of other continuous variables. And so, hence, we've gotten very excited these days about the notion of time as another continuous variable onto which events can be mapped, which is essential to what's called episodic memory. So uh, there's a lot of excitement and several laboratories that have demonstrated the hippocampus can map events in time and can just map time itself, much the way. So we haven't talked about this yet, and you're the guy to tell us about it. So these are some of these cells are the same cells as place, or most of them are. It's an overlapping population. They're the same. Completely overlapping. So tell can you can you and how do you disantangle space from time? Ah, good question. That's not not so easy. (laughs) So so the way space was interesting. The way space was disentangled from events that might occur be occur at different places was basically to sort of homogenize all the events, make all the events the same everywhere along the space. And so the only variable essentially going on is where you are in space. The place cell phenomenon emerged. Didn't say that doesn't say they don't encode the events, but one wouldn't know it by doing that experiment. Uh, We have to kind of do the same thing. So the way we get time cells to emerge is to equalize space, to to get rid of space, not not in the sense that you can have no space, but to fix space in one location and also fix behavior in one location. So we have a couple of techniques that I'll talk about today. One of those is to have animals run on a treadmill. So the behavior is locked at running constantly at the speed of the treadmill. So you've kind of made behavior constant. And the animal's location is locked at one location the whole time. And so the question is, will something emerge that signals time? And we were almost too surprised to see that, yeah, there's these cells called time cells that fire at different moments in time. Um, in addition, that's not to say they can't, those cells can't encode other things. And as I'll talk about today, they can encode, for example, the distance you've traveled on the treadmill as well as the amount of time you've traveled. And you can disentangle those two as well. So is this how we're building? Is this, is, is the idea is that <clears throat> this is where we build our idea of time or where is this time signal coming ah, from? That's a good question. So this is one topic we've been discussing <laughs> folks as we've spent time today. So there are kind of two views on it. One view really comes out of, for me, it comes out of the place cell story, which suggests that place cells are kind of listening to the spatial 
system of the brain, of cerebral cortex areas, by parietal cortex and, uh, and, and other areas that we know encode space, mostly egocentric space. And the hippocampus reads that out and makes a map of, of allocentric space or general location in space. So one idea might be time that the hippocampal cells are also reading from some clock in the brain someplace else, which could be in the stratum, could be in other cortical areas. And the hints from the literature on that suggest there are many areas that may be involved in timing in some sense, although it's so rather ill-understood area. The other uh, going force for that is that hippocampal cells are, are essentially firing in a chain, synfire chains, they called at one time or another, or perhaps networks that succeed in moving from one state to another that encode time, but it's internal. So the difference is whether it's an external mechanism of reading out time from elsewhere or an internal timing mechanism within the hippocampus, and the search is on to find out which of those is the crucial one. I'll talk about some evidence that suggests there are some at least external factors that are required to get so can I just want to ask a question about what you said. So if I'm imagining a rat getting on a treadmill, and now I'm imagining what a time cell would mean, that means that when the rat first starts to run, some cell fires, and then it quits. And then after that, some other cells fire, and then they quit. Yep. And then at some point, the rat gets off the treadmill. Yep. And there have been some cells that was the last cell that fired. Yep. Which maybe is the cell that says, time to get off the treadmill. That's, that's yep. exactly what That's exactly what we see. Is. Succession of cells firing one after another, each for a small period of time. And a period of like running would would be would be broken up into some how many different slices of time that are represented by different cells. Uh, perhaps. I mean that's a good way to look at it. Although an interesting feature of these time cells is that the, the width of the time field, so to speak, that is the period of time for which each cell fires, widens as you go across time and follows what's called a scalar of Weber-Fechner function in time. I I think that's simply because time, unlike space, has to be internally coordinated. For space, as long as your eyes are open, you can always tell where you are at some point. So unlike place cells that are sort of equivalent equivalent size place field anywhere in space, as long as as your eyes are open, Time has to rely upon just the beginning. So the slice of time that you refer to actually Depends keeps getting bigger and farther. So how far can events be that can be potentially... That's a good question. It somewhat comes down to the technology of how long you can get an animal to do one thing continuously versus usually how many trials you can get them to run within a day. So all the things physiologists suffer of getting an animal to play a game, you know, to collect the data plus plus uh, other features. So we know they can go at least out to 20 seconds or so in, in the current events. Uh, there are some behavioral tasks that give us some indicators of what might be the limit. So one of them is called a behavioral paradigm called trace sphere conditioning, where you can present a tone and then, and then there's an empty temporal gap and then you present a shock and how long can that interval be to which the animal can still associate the tone and the shock. It's on the order of about 30 seconds. I was going to ask and you so that might be about that because I think that it's fascinating to think about time as providing the context that bounds events but there are two types of timing that allow us to bind events. One restricts what memories can be associated such as in trace conditioning but also we can use time to bind events within several hours. For example, when you think about the wedding and you think about getting dressed for the wedding, going to the ceremony, going to the party, etc., and you encapsulate the whole concept of the wedding within all those several hours that then you will remember, right? So do you think that different brain regions modulate the short time scale that allows for associative learning versus those events that we encode as memories. And there is that, there are some new papers that suggest that can be 
somehow stored together in That's memory, right. the work of Gina Josephine, for example. Yeah, yes. So the, there is actually a mechanism within the hippocampus, and there may be another structures too, as suggested by Sheena's work most recently, that for which the sort of network property keeps gravitating, keeps changing, gradually changing over time, even if nothing specific is setting a sequence of events in motion. So we found that in some of our earliest studies before we kind of came upon the time cells that others have seen as well, that fire, you know, they fire repetitively at discrete moments. We had a task where animals were performing a game where they had to remember a sequence of events. And we found it, but, but each trial was unique, different sequence of events in every trial. So you couldn't have, the cells didn't time lock to the beginning of each trial. Essentially, they're just different sequences of time, of cells firing for, at different times because there were different memories involved. But we noticed that the whole ensemble tends to just drift. It, it becomes less and less similar to itself for on for hours afterwards. So that may encode things like you were saying, of, you know, essentially what can encode everything that happens during a day. And there's other work by the Lutgebs in particular that show that the place cell ensembles change over time, even when the animal goes back to the same environment on repeated days, the ensemble just drifts over days. So that might you know, be able to signal that this was, I was in the box today, and that was the box I was in yesterday, and that tomorrow it's sort of farther along, it's sort of the same box, but the box is different. I can assign which day I entered that box and so on. So I was wondering, uh, going back to the human, you know, condition, did HM, did they ever do any sort of behavioral task that could sort of explicitly look at timing-related deficits? You know, obviously, day-to-day would not be working, but in sort of a shorter time scale, um, sort of, you know, piggybacks on our different, you know, neural networks, different neural systems involved with this sort of timing behavior, did he exhibit any sort of timing deficits? Yes, he did, actually. So these are not the best-known papers, you know, the most famous papers, but in the catalog of, you know, hundreds of experiments that he's been involved in. There was a couple of folks who tested him and other amnesics on time. They tend to foreshorten time a lot, just just as rats do if you take out the hippocampus. They just guess time is shorter than before. Now, we don't know whether that's kind of a memory deficit. They can't remember how long ago the interval began, or it's really getting at the time issue per se in some sense. So it isn't that they don't time, it's just they, they foreshorten time, so your clock is running too fast, or they're using some other mechanism rather poorly to hold on to time. In episodic- but they're terrible at remembering the order of things. And, you know, so a, you know, a typical deficit in episodic memory is the inability to organize a sequence of events in time. So music patients and rats with hippocampal damage can't remember the order of an arbitrary sequence of events. The, uh, is there a limit on human episodic memory about how long of a period of time is could be an episode. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. So, uh, work by Lila Devachi in particular, sort of cognitive neuroscience and human emergency, and then work by cognitive neuroscience before that suggests we have a limited, or yet, yet not specified what the limited amount is that constitutes an episode. Then it tends to be chunked, actually, somewhat like the, the bird literature we talked about before, where there's some kind of break between this episode and the next one, which might be a sort of a continuation or not, but it sort of breaks off. You, you stop and then, then it picks up and starts going again. And so in the hippocampus, what they find is a sort of, again, a graded correlation of activation that's gradually changing over time within an episode, a sequence of events, and then sort of a break in which it sort of starts over again. So a big break in which the representation almost starts over something brand new that's different than the other one and gradually moves on again. So there, the, the, the science of human memory for a long period seems to be that we have chunks, breaks, next chunk, next break, and so on. Uh, many of these are related to attentional shifts. You know, something's changed about the conversation. You bring up a new topic and so on. So, somewhat anecdotal as to exactly what it is, whether these breaks would occur if there was no, you know, break in the continual conversation, as it were, and so on. So, it's still not well studied, but suggests there's. We do. Like I mean, yeah. of course, time is continuous. So, if, if our experience gets broken up, it must be a study. So, yeah. that's just a sign. Right. 
this is the end of an episode. This is the end of an episode. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it seems that way more than anything else. We sort of decide some shift in the things you're remembering is this qualitative shift rather than just quantitatively it's the next step. So it's interesting what, whether you, you talked about this thing about starting with the human literature and the association stuff and how much in terms of people studying these questions of reorganizing episodes and so forth about whether those experimental paradigms are drifting into the kind of animal paradigms. Because some of it, the way, at least the way you introduced it, and it's often the case, is that the limitations are because you get a nice reduced paradigm so you can see some clean behavior and align them over multiple trials and so forth. And then you get limited by the paradigm. The way you see space is to eliminate everything else and the way you see time is to eliminate everything else. And, you know, the human literature, and I don't know what the challenges are, is they've been looking at the mixtures and how they interact for a, a long time. Uh, and whether you can take that literature and use those kinds of mixtures uh, to say, look at episodes and now you can look at the neurons and, and those patterns drifting and whether you see shifts and so forth. Yeah. So are there, does that seem to be happening at all or not? Yeah, uh, somewhat. <laughs> I mean, I think in the Devachi study I was talking about just a moment ago is kind of a good version of that where she has a series of pictures you have to remember. They're all within the same spatial context and then suddenly you shift to a different scene, spatial context in which another sequence of events occur and that's where the shifts occur when you suddenly sort of contextual shift and so on that, that might be that might simulate the normal course of a conversation or a set of events in which we suddenly move from one episode in our life to the, on to the next episode so what do you think is the trigger that tells the hippocampus that the context has changed or is it self-generated yeah, or an excellent question so I, I always think the hippocampus as the end point of listening to all these other areas so my guess is that decision is already made someplace else when you're you know, cortical shortcuts have decided there's a shift in context or a shift in topic, mm -hmm. a switch over to some other new chunk of information, and the hippocampus just is tracking those shifts. But I, I don't know that anybody knows. I don't know there's any good evidence to support that speculation. Yeah. For example, as time passes by, it has been shown that he, memories become more independent of the hippocampus to some extent, not completely sometimes for the mm -hmm. people you still need the hippocampus, but... Uh, somehow we can keep track of how old a memory is. So the time signal should also arise from extra hippocampal structures because otherwise it would be impossible to keep track of those events over years of our yeah. lifetime. So what do you think about that and how do you... Yeah, so I mean, we, we haven't done... I'd love to do the lifetime experiment. Get a grant to fund that. I know we want to talk about grants, but I want that longitudinal grant. Anyway. You study mice. It's not, it's not so long. That's right. all right. <laughs> um, you know, as I try to struggle with that literature, sort of cognitive science on that, there's an awful lot about these contextuals just often being marked by events that are occurring. You know, what was the political situation? How old were my kids then? And so on. This. So it's not clear to me that things we remember, you know, that this happened four years ago or five years ago, so about time so much as other things that define those mm -hmm. moments in time, those periods in our lives. Um, so I'm not sure anybody, any, I'm not sure you know, there's a, that time is really what's driving our ability to remember when things happen back, way back in our lives. But there does seem to be something, I, I'm so, but I'm very fascinated by the idea of what's happening, let's say, over the last week. You know, how many days ago did you last see one of your colleagues or something like that? How'd we do that? And some of it may just be that way that I always see my colleague at the department meeting, which is always on a Tuesday or something. You go to those Mark. things? <laughs> Rarely. <laughs> but don't tape that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, um, uh, 
but I, I, some of the some of it, I really think, is this sort of faded image of, of sort of the accumulated information over time and how much stuff there is going back. It's sort of a quick guess about time. Maybe that's kind of the temporal equivalent of path integration. Of how far along have I gone on this temporal path? Right. Uh, some some kind of accumulator. So there, there might be some match even there between the folks who love path integration as a as a geometry problem and path integration as as just simply an accumulation of history. What are the factors that can um, manipulate the the kind of the the I don't know how to ask this question. Um, so I'm, what I'm getting at is things that so tasks that require focused concentration are going to happen on a smaller time frame, right? Um, is the granularity of the responses of these cells linked to things like focus or attention? And can you sort of spread things out and contract things pharmacologically, say? Like, right. is, can you imagine? That's a terrific question. Like and, uh, I think that great avenue, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't know of anybody who's tried to use drugs that make us feel things are happening fast. Could you imagine that they would? I imagine that they would. I mean, I think the hippocampus is this sort of somewhat passive recorder of experience. And if we're experiencing things faster, it'll be recording them faster. Um, it's still really kind of early days. The whole idea that cells would code time the way they encode space is just maybe five years old now. So, other um, dimensions. And Selma said the multidimensional yeah. space. So was, I was headed there too. And, and we Absolutely. know that space is here. Those dimensions yeah. and time is one. Yep. How many more? So there are more. Absolutely. So I tend to think of the hippocampus as encoding. Uh, we know it, it's major inputs, major cortical inputs, at least are through a sort of a con- convergence of the what stream and the where stream, the cl- those classic streams back through areas of interrhinal cortex, which are still really the endpoints of those streams, and finally they converge. So I, I think the message from that anatomy is that there's a stream of information coming that represents events that occur, objects and events, things that have specific punctate things that happen. And that the, I think the where stream, we should re- be, really be thinking of that as sort of a contextual stream, of, a framework of... Of, of continuous parameters that change very gradually. Space is a good example of that. You know, if you go around space, time is certainly a really good example of something that's changing gradually. Right? So any gradually changing parameter arguably should be mapped as well, as long as it provides a context in which specific events occur. So I'm very excited about a, a bunch of experiments that have come out recently widening this range of things the hippocampus seems to be mapping. They come from both cognitive neuroscience and human neuroscience and, and animal experiments. So one published a couple of years ago now by Daniela Schiller, uh, finds that social space, which has continuous parameters such as, that are popular in social psychology, like familiarity of a person and their dominance, uh, you know, subordinate relationship are two primary dimensions of social space that sociologists, social psychologists talk about. They're mapped out in the hippocampus. When people learn about a new environment, where your friends and enemies and who you work with, and your, uh, people in your apartment building and so on. Uh, there's another one just published recently uh, by someone from Oxford, uh, uh, Tim Behrens, who finds, now this is shifting to interrhinal cortex, but it's sort of the partner with the hippocampus and mapping space, most people say, well, the grid cells, right? Who found a mapping of a very abstract space. This is a really cute study. I hope it doesn't take too long to describe in a really, really brief, sketchy, briefy way. So people had to learn about what he called squishy birds. Now, squishy birds are stick figure birds who have a head that's sort of an oval and a body that's a bigger oval, right? And those are connected together by a stick that's a, that's a, a neck and sticks that are legs. Okay, so you can imagine a stick bird like that, right? But they vary, all the different species of birds vary by neck length and, and, and leg length from little ducks that have both of those short to straps or whatever that have long legs on necks, right? You have to learn associations of each of these guys. So people effectively in a, in a video game learn 
uh, a, a space of neck and, and leg length. That's two-dimensional space. Right? Sure enough, you get a grid cell pattern in the entorhinal cortex of people. Yeah, so it's mapping this abstract you know, bird space. Uh, there's another one that's uh, going to be coming out that's been, been talked about in various forms from a student in David Hank's laboratory of rats learning a task where they have to hold a lever down. When they push the lever down, a tone comes on and it sort of ramps up gradually from low pitch to higher pitch. And they have to hold the lever down and let go when the pitch gets to just the right frequency, a target frequency, right? And they vary all kinds of parameters. What's the ramping speed? So you eliminate time as the factor or the pressure you have to hold in a variety of things. So it's simply pitch. And what happens if the cells become auditory neurons? They start firing to very specific uh, frequencies in auditory space. So they're effectively mapping out this one-dimensional auditory frequency space. Is it the auditory cells or it's just they are just... Well, of course, the of course, these are the cells that are play cells, right? <laughs> they're the same cell. He puts these animals out in that open field and they're Maybe they are mapping the relevance. And yeah, so I think relevant. they're mapping this highly relevant continuous parameter, which in this case just happens to be auditory frequency. But then you can play tones later, right? Yeah, they, no, they don't respond to the tones. So they don't if, you, if you just have the animal walking around the box and you play tones at them, they don't respond. So it's only within the context of this task that they do that. So then there's a really important question. So they don't, they're not really auditory, right? So they facsimile, they imitate auditory. So with all these dimensions, yeah. do you see the same replay when the animals are sleeping? I mean, it's sort of been well known that yeah. in the spatial mapping, you know, you'll see the replay faster you know, yeah. it, when the animal's sleeping. Do I mean, obviously this is an emerging field, but... You know, do you see the exact same thing happening when the animals are sleeping when you're looking at specific other parameters that are... Well, finally, I can say yes. We had a student in the laboratory for a long time who left and went to do other things. As students tend to do, they take up forever to write the paper, but it's under review now. And the answer is clearly yes, that they, you get replay of time cell sequences. Seem like play cells, you know, just, just like you get replay of play cell sequences when they're asleep. But it seems like so the, this dimensionality, and one of the things that that you emphasize in terms of HM and so forth, the remembering orders yeah. of things. And episodic things are actually a sequence of events. And then you have continuous things that might be local events. Yeah. But this thing about changing context and sequencing context and resetting time is uh, – so the hippocampus might be great in mapping events. Uh, one of the things we don't do so much with place cells is you have contexts – and then you move them one to the other. And I don't know, it's a huge literature, but I don't know about people looking at uh, going from one set of place context to another to uh, the yeah. mapping the sequences of episodes, right? Yeah. So you, uh, the question, I mean, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure what you're doing. I'm mapping uh, sequences of episodes. <laughs> or mapping space. So even if you change, move animals from one con- spatial context, which you get one set of cells firing in there, very beautiful spatial map to another you know, you know, there's different visual cues that define the context. You get a sort of wholesale remapping that as all the half the cells turn off, new cells appear, they all fire different places. Uh, so that big change occurs. It doesn't require actually changing the spatial cues to do that. Isabel's done beautiful experiments where all you have to do is change the significance of the environment. So from a neutral environment for, to a fearful environment, and you get this wholesale remapping that occurs anyway. Um, and so uh, one of the things that categorically changes the, the whole map uh, which it seems to do in a right. So just like those so-called auditory neurons in frequency space don't work for, as auditory neurons in any other condition. I mean, that, that would be the equivalent of taking a place cell that fires in this field and just showing me the part of the world that defines this location without the rest of the room. I'm not even sure how to conceive what that would look like to see one part of the room without the rest of the room.
about the rest of the room. <laughs> but you can do that with auditory experience. So in the same way, all you have to do is change the, the meaningful context. In this case, you typically get also a remapping. So it, so it really does define what, uh, you know, the way I like to think of it is that what hippocampal cells are doing, what the place cells do, calling them place with quotes now, do is map out, they, 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 they parcel out units of whatever the continuous dimensions are that define a particular context. And context is you know, kind of a dirty word in the field. It's what's a context, what's not. Again, I define it as a background and which is defined by continuous variables. Space is a really good one time. It's a good one. And you can create other artificial or reasonable, you know, reasonable ones like social space, which is very natural, of course, or artificial ones like squishy birds and, and, and tones. So can we um, get even further out there into more conceptual yeah. uh, learning? Like yeah. So then it's conceptual space. So conceptual space, this gets really abstract. You know, almost how, now how the psychologist in me comes rushing out and just talk flaky <laughs> like psychologists. So there are conceptual spaces too. So good models of this, which started way back. I started, I spread myself started doing these studies a long time ago and have been picked up by cognitive neuropsychologists uh, more recently, have been to learn relationships among items, which form a kind of micro space, so to speak. So we taught animals, for example, that A is associated with B, and these are two just arbitrary stimuli, they have to be odor stimuli. So you associate it with A with odor B, right? And then on a separate occasion, you associate odor B with odor C. So and then you ask the, the question, the novel question, is A related to C? And the rat can tell you yes. I won't go through the details of how we get him to answer that question. But you might think of this as the minimal associative space. A is related to B, B is related to C. So now I have a three-part, or actually triangular now, social space, A, B, C, as a sort of triangle relationships. You can teach them a slightly more complicated one. For example, a hierarchy. So pick A over B. Pick B over C. Pick C over D. Pick D over E. Right? So a sequence of five like that. They learn each of these quite separately. So then you ask the inferential question is should you pick B over D? Right? They've never seen B and D before. They have no training, ba- you know, conditioning basis that B is better than D. It's not better. It's not more rewarded than D. You know, they're all rewarded half the time, right? Um, and the rats can do that, believe it or not. And you need a hippocampus for it. So this is an arbitrary, you know, hierarchy of, of associative space, right? A hierarchical associative space and so on. Pick something over something over something over something, right? Now, humans do these tasks, too, and sure enough, the hippocampus lights up when they have to do either the sort of associative inference task, the first task I talked about with the three items, or the sequence items also turns on the hippocampus. Um, and so these are the huge hippocampus. <laughs> Who does that? Logician. Yeah, well, I would think so. So they have a logical space. I mean, I, I think it applies to essentially knowledge spaces. And they, these are, you know, some very simplistic models of knowledge spaces. We call them spaces, though. So yeah. Well, so space is used so kind of in two space. ways. Time is, 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 is essentially spatial. Yeah. Time uh, is another dimension of space. Yeah. Einstein talked about that. <laughs> and it turns out to be right in our psychology. Well, that's, yeah, getting philosophical, it's an interesting question whether they're, I mean, I think in that field, I try to, a few times I've talked to the, you know, the physicists who actually play with this now, and a question sort of in the cognitive psychology, is there, you know, is there a concept of time? Is time a thing, actually? You know, it works really well in the math for physicists. They love it because it works. I don't know if they really care whether it's real or not. Uh, you know, others would say time is not a real thing. We're just, it's a concept we cooked up, right, to help us understand what life is like, right? Uh, but I would say that doesn't matter. If we can cook it up and think about it, the hippocampus is listening. It's going to use it to help, help us try to organize our knowledge. But if it's associational, you have to have a notion of similarity, right? So yeah. you have to talk about things that are close. Yep. So it's, uh-huh. it's, a, it's an interesting thing whether that, 
somehow get spatial yeah. in terms of the things that are close in yeah. space, whether the organization that would yeah. might have been much more concrete when you start to get abstract, whether you use space for real for yeah. space because yeah. you need a notion of similarity, yeah. that that's the one, right? That's the one that's grounded in every little critter that runs around. Right. Now I have to tell you, I get, I get to tell you, about the first half of my talk. <laughs> so we have this funny behavioral game. We have to try to find another another example of a kind of space that gets to come to be a somewhat complicated one that certainly has physical space as a part of it. Let's have an animal learn, I'll give you the briefest version, is to learn which objects are rewarded in which places in a couple of different environments. So we have to learn a whole bunch of object place memory. Um, and then we so we record from as many hippocampal neurons as we can typically recording small populations of cells 10 to maybe 30 cells at a time and then we use a kind of analysis that's very popular in functional imaging literature in human cognitive neuroscience called representational similarity analysis and it's simply essentially you get these lists of firing rates people called population vectors, and you just correlate a population vector for one event, what happens on one trial, one object in one place, that means a certain thing, so it can have, be defined by a compound set of variables, right, a mixed set of variables, to what happens on some other event. And the basic result, to foretell what I'm going to talk about, is that if you just repeat the event, you get a very similar population code. That's good. Campus cares about the event, I guess. It's not just noise. And if you change one of the variables, what happens is the correlation goes down. So the two vectors are not as correlated as they were, which means, you know, cognitively they're more they're separated in some kind of representational space. So you can ask that about all the different variations of different variables. What happens when I change a place in no other variable? What happens if I change it to be in a different box in no other variable? What happens if I start changing combinations of these variables? And what you get is, a, just, just as been done in, in functional imaging studies in humans, using now, you know, voxels as if they were I'm using Sure. We have neurons, they have voxels, so they have a cruder version of the same idea. You know, we could wave our hands about that. But, but basically, they come up with the same thing. You can find out essentially the organization of all of the different objects and places that they learn about and how the hippocampus has organized them all. And, and it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so, and what comes out of it, so the briefest version of that is what comes out is this is a spatial organization. So, it's dictated by the two different environments the animals see these objects in, then where in the environment. So, spatial factors are on top in terms of organizing features. Then, underneath that, they associate things that happen to have the same values, reward value, reward associations. Even if they occur in very different trials, they're not associated because they happen near each other, they're associated because they share a common reward association. And then underneath that, finding the things that are most similar are the things that are that are just objects that are different from one another that are of the same reward system. So it's a very hierarchical structure um, that by which the hippocampus is effectively organized a whole variety of memories that compose performing this task, which you could say it's an episode. He plays this game for half an hour, and his structure of the episode is this, this hierarchical representation of the spatial and object variables. This has been so much fun. Thank you for joining us, Howard right. Eichenbaum. Thank the you for Neuroscientist me. Talk Shop. Mm-hmm.